Welcome to the Podwell Travels Cruising Special. I'm Stephen Scowfield, and I'm here with my colleague Michael Franti, who has been voted as Australasia's best cruising writer, Australia and New Zealand this year, so that's a major award. Michael's going to be talking with Jason Flesher from Scenic Cruises about how expedition cruises actually put their itinerary together and how that feeds into local communities. That's a bit later in this episode, but first... Here's Michael talking to Joel Katz. Joel Katz, the Managing Director of Cruise Lines International Association of Australasia. Good morning, Joel. Good morning, Michael. Good to be with you. Lots to be excited about in this upcoming 23-24 season. It's shaping up to be one of the, the biggest and best ever. Yes, so as you say, it's shaping up to be one of the strongest seasons we've ever seen uh, in our region. We're planning to welcome... Uh, around 70 cruise ships over the 23-24 season, which is well above the, the 60 that visited that were due to visit us in the, in the last uh, year uh, of Operation 1920. Those ships are going to spend almost 2,000 port days around Australia, and of course passengers and cruise lines spending billions of dollars in, in communities right around our coast. So very, very exciting from that perspective but also just exciting from the, the real enthusiasm and, and uh, positivity we're seeing around cruise. Everybody's very excited. Consumer sentiment is very strong at the moment. Cruise lines are re- reporting really strong forward booking pace. I guess it bodes well for many of our coastal communities. Exactly. Cruise has the ability to take international visitors and Australians to areas of the country that they wouldn't normally be able to get to or wouldn't be able to easily get to and spend in those communities. Um, the feedback that we get from the guests is that they love being able to uh, get to uh, remote destinations, regional areas, and the feedback from the communities is that they really appreciate that uh, economic contribution. We, we've just spoken recently to some uh, tour operators up in the Northern Territory who don't normally see a lot of uh, tourists during the wet season, and they've said if it wasn't for the cruise passengers coming through, they wouldn't be able to survive through the year. And that's the beauty of cruise tourism. It, it brings people into areas they, they probably wouldn't venture. Exactly. And, and, and the other positive thing is that the communities are actually re- reporting quite a strong repeat factor. So guests who are then visiting them by land for, for sort of more extended land holidays very often are saying they first experienced the community um, on a ship and uh, were so uh, excited by the opportunities that they've come back for a, an extended land holiday. So we've got several newcomers coming down under this season. Tell us, uh, tell us a bit about you know the, the newbies coming on board this year. Yeah, we're really lucky uh, down under. We really have uh, almost every type and style of cruising available um, in our region. Australians love to cruise, and the cruise lines have responded by by sending their their ships in our direction. And this year, we will be getting Virgin Voyages for the first time. Um, that's very exciting, and uh, they'll be doing a lot of cruising along the, the southeast coast and, and across to New Zealand. Disney Cruise Line, very, very exciting to have Disney come to our region for the first time, obviously offering that unique Disney-style product. Um, Scenic, um, which operates uh, a smaller luxury ship, and obviously Scenic has its, its heritage here in Australia, so it's very exciting to have a Scenic ship in Australia for the first time. And then uh, next year, we're going to get one of the new seaboard expedition ships coming down. So again, very exciting. 
Absolutely. And I know I'm one of the excited ones looking forward to Celebrity Edge, which will be also coming to Australia uh, in December, in fact, uh, and I'll be on board. So looking forward to that one as well. Yes, Celebrity have been a, a long time visitor to, to Australia, but this will be the first time that we have their Edge class ship uh, coming down. And everybody's very excited about that. It really uh, um, broke the mold when it came to uh, designing ships. So it'll be great to see one of those new uh, newer ships down in our region. Yeah, and it, I suppose this is a, a good little segue into my next question. Last month, there was five new ships coming on board. Uh, and over the next five years, we're looking at uh, over 40 new ships uh, bringing new capacity into the market, um, you know, worth something like $60 billion. It, it's quite uh, unbelievable. Can, can the industry sustain that level of growth? And, and how will it go about doing that, do you think? Yes, uh, it is. It's, it's really exciting. Um, as you as you say, there are there are about forty um, ships due to be delivered between now and twenty twenty seven. This year alone, there are fourteen ships being delivered. Uh, since uh, two thousand and nineteen, the industry has invested um, around sixty billion dollars in new tonnage. So your your questions are really a really good question. I think the important thing to remember is that cruising, while it, it has a very high profile. In, within tourism, it's actually a very small part of tourism. Cruising is less than two percent of global tourism, so there really is, you know, in, at our peak in 2019, we carried just under 30 million guests. This year, we're forecasting to just to exceed that by about six percent. So we're still a very, very small part of uh, of tourism. So there's enormous opportunity. Um, here in Australia, where we have one of the highest market penetrations in the world, at its, at its peak a few years ago, it was, it was around 5% of the population. That means 95% of Australians haven't cruised yet. Mm. And we know that Australians have such a strong affinity for cruise. There, there, there really is uh, enormous opportunity. We will need around uh, 4 million new to cruise passengers over the next uh, few years to be able to uh, support the new tonnage. But the demand is there. The sentiment is there. And uh, that's why the cruise lines are investing in those ships. Yeah, so growing the pie, in other words, that's part of the, of the strategy you're bringing in. Yeah, and, and I think if you look at the, the breakdown of those of new ships under development, I think it, it really tells the story of the industry. About a third of the new ships are the larger ships, the contemporary uh, ships, as we call them. About a third are the mid-size ships. And then a third are those small luxury expedition ships or small ships. Which is which is very appealing to those that want to sort of get to more off the beaten track kinds of destinations. Um, multi generational travel is really uh, growing. Grandparents bringing kids, bringing grandkids, and what we're actually seeing now is that those younger generations who have been introduced to cruising by their parents and grandparents are actually now booking cruise as their preferred holiday choice. The average age of of, of cruising is now below forty nine. So we're really seeing that uh, popularity amongst all age groups. And then, and then it, it really offers the opportunity for people to, um, to, to have an incredible experience in a, very, uh, in a way that really appeals to every demographic. So no matter what kind of experience you're looking for, there really is a cruise product that can offer that. Yeah, and I was just blown away by a, a statistic from some of the latest research where... 88% of millennials have said they would cruise again. And even even that average age, I think it was like came in at 46 and a half or something like that. Quite incredible figures there. And you, you touched on perhaps why that might be the case. Did those figures surprise you? Look, we've been, we've been seeing a trend over the last uh, number of years. 
that the average age was dropping. We really see multi-generational uh, travel as being a, 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 um, a big selling point for cruising over, over the last 10 years or so. So it really hasn't been a surprise. We know that you know the value for money that cruise offers, the ease of cruise travel, the fact that it can take you to those off the, off the um, bin path uh, destinations has really appealed to those millennials. But also the fact that the industry's um, very focused now on uh, destination sustainability and providing more experiential products. And, and we see that with the significant growth in those expedition ships. Mm. And, uh, we, we know that millennials are looking for authentic experiences. They're looking for uh, hands-on experiences. And Cruise can now offer that. And we've just spoken with Jason Flesher from, from Scenic, who, of course, will be sending their brand-new Scenic Eclipse 2 ship uh, our way over the, the next Kimberley season. With regards to the small ships, what's your take on why that's growing so much? Some of their research pointed to 20% growth year-on-year. Year. What do you think is, is helping to drive that? Well, I think it's a combination of, of different things. One is that there is that strong growth in, from millennials, and there is that desire for people to have more of a of, of an authentic experience, very often an educational experience, getting access to the natural environment, and of course uh, the indigenous culture of the Kimberley and the history of many of the destinations where those small expedition ships can can travel to. So while the expedition cruisers may not traditionally have considered themselves cruisers. They're now seeing the opportunity with that growth in, in expedition itineraries that they can cruise, they can get those incredible experiences that the expedition lines are offering, and, and that then exposes them to, to cruising more broadly, and they'll then often come back with their kids, with their grandkids, and as we like to say, you know, have a, have a great experience on a cruise ship and you're hooked for life. Yes, absolutely. And just finally, Joel, the industry as a whole are making some, some big strides on the sustainability front. Where do you see the state of play currently with regards to, you know, things like alternative fuels and just the effort in general from the industry to, to become a, a more sustainable, cleaner type of travel experience? And this is a key focus for the industry globally. Um, although, we're, as, I, as I mentioned, we're just a very small part of tourism and we're, we're less than 1% of global maritime, we are a high-profile industry. We do rely on the, on the oceans and, and very often uh, remote destinations, pristine operating areas for our, um, to be able to provide those incredible experiences to our guests. So it's very important to us that we do put a sustainability focus on everything that we're doing. So the industry has committed to net zero by 2050, and the cruise lines are actively working in partnership with the, the engine manufacturers, the shipyards, the fuel providers, to understand what does that pathway look like to get to, to net zero. Cruise lines are, are doing trials as we speak of biofuels, ethanol, methanol, uh, hybrid battery systems, to, to understand what the best way is to get to 2050. You know, we spoke earlier about the number of new ships um, under development. Obviously, these ships have a, an extended lifespan. So it really is those ships that are being launched in the coming years that will be the ships that take us to 2050. So it's very important that those ships have the latest technology on and each generation we're seeing uh, adopt the, the newest technolo technology that's available at the time. And a significant number of those ships are already able to operate um, with biofuels. 
when those fuels are available at scale in the places they need to be to be able to, to service the, the ships. So that's a key focus from the, for the industry. And then, of course, the other side is destination stewardship. You know, we, we want our destinations that the ships visit to be better off for the ships having visited them. We spoke about the economic contribution, but it's also about making sure that we understand the carrying capacity of each destination. No one wants uh, nations to be to feel that they're overcrowded or worse off for the ships having having visited. So the cruise lines are, are spending a lot of time and effort working with communities, understanding the the concerns and the and the issues that communities have around visitation, and making sure that the cruise contribution is a positive one. The really positive thing about cruising is that it is really one of the best forms of managed tourism. Cruise lines are booking their uh, itineraries many years in advance. Communities know that those ships are coming. They're accepting the bookings. And then the cruise lines are able to work with the communities, with the ground operators, to make sure that when the ships do come, it's a really positive and beneficial experience for those communities. Yeah, some very valid points to uh, to end our chat on because yeah, we've just seen uh, probably the, the biggest... Kimberley season we've we've ever had and, and it's growing year on year and I know there is some of those concerns up there too so you've made some uh, you made some very valid points uh, you know which apply directly to you know pristine fragile environment like the Kimberley exactly exactly and uh, the cruise lines and here are in conversations with the communities with the Western Australian government to understand how best to manage that growth in a positive way so that the those remote communities can continue to benefit but at the same time making sure that it's done in a controlled and positive way. So, wow, that's the scene, not, not only in Australia, Michael, but internationally. I mean, Joel's given us an interesting perspective and also you've led us right up the gangway uh, to... Yeah, I did say <laughs> Just that. to keep the palms rolling, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you've led us right up the gangway. To your conversation with uh, Jason Flesher, who, as I say, is the Director of Discovery Operations for the Scenic Group. Uh, Jason's in Arizona, and this is Michael with Jason. Scenic Eclipse 2 is spending the next couple of years in our region, in, uh, in the Southern Pacific, uh, including, very excitingly, in the, in the Kimberley next year. Uh, so tell us a bit about the yeah. expedition program you've got. Because you've got about uh, 20 on board, haven't you? Sure. Expedition team, the discovery team, as we call it, that'll be on board. We'll have up to 15 when they're around Australia. And it, it diversifies on the numbers. So when we're in full expedition mode, as we call it, whether it's in the Antarctic or in the Arctic, we'll have up to 20. But if we include our helicopter and submersible pilot, and we actually are around 26, um, the size of the discovery team. But for the region in the South Pacific and around Australia, we'll have 15. And the 15 most come from Australia, but I'm also bringing in some of my international guides who have a lot of experience, years and years, down in the Kimberley. And these folks are, like I said, PhDs in historians, but also archaeologists, anthropologists, because I know culturally how significant the Kimberleys are. So we'll also have anthropologists on board, as well as the marine biologists, because during the time we'll be in the Kimberley is during the whale migration season, so the marine biologists will be there, 
yes. as well as our ornithologists and our naturalists. So we'll be able to give a full, well-rounded experience, enriching experience for the guests, whether it's on board on our, our lecture series or when they're actually out on the Zodiac cruises or on shore during their excursion. And our helicopter pilots are also well-diverse in the topography and the history of where they'll be flying. Terrific. Yeah, that's an important point too because you've got both the onboard expedition lectures and, and you know, detail about, uh, you know, the natural world, these sort of wilderness areas. The expeditions are led by uh, uh, Mike Cusack. Can you tell us a bit about his experience, uh, particularly in the Kimberley? Yeah, I feel so lucky and um, excited about Mike joining the Discovery Team, the Discovery Leader, because Mike has well over 20 years' experience operating in the Kimberley. Many years ago, he and his wife literally had to spend a year in the outback surviving on their own, and they wrote a book about it. So he has very intimate experience with the different Aboriginal communities, as well as the the land itself and a true understanding of the Kimberley. So having my, I just feel so um, lucky and so excited for our guests, but not just the guests, the discovery team themselves and the ship to be led by Mike. And Mike will actually be on board for the entire Kimberley season. Scenic Eclipse 2 is, you know, a high-tech vessel. You've got all sorts of, uh, a, a submarine, you've got a couple of helicopters. Being such a vast uh, and dramatic landscape up there, how how, um, how significant will it be to have those uh, Airbus uh, helicopters operating up in that part of the world? You know, it's definitely going to be a game changer. For one, it's the only expedition vessel of her class that actually has helicopters on board that will be operating in the Kimberley area. And so only a couple of the smaller yachts and ships that have a helicopter on board, but they, they don't have the H-130, is one of your best flight-seeing helicopters out there. Even Those are the only he- helicopters actually fly in the Grand Canyon, you know, in my state of Arizona, and many other areas around the world for flight-seeing. And we've also modified them to be even quieter. So, so it doesn't disturb the guest experience who are on shore, but also the wildlife. We're so mindful not to disturb the wildlife. And so when we take off or land on the ship, we have specific flight pattern to do so. So one, we never fly over, you know, whether Antarctica, the penguin colonies, or never fly near um, bird rookeries, and also, you know, around the uh, whales and so on. And so we want to make sure they're ultra quiet and not disturb that experience. But it's not just about the helicopter technologies and the modifications we did. The ship herself, she was so purposely built and ahead of her time that many of the other operators now are trying to catch up to what Phoenix Eclipse has. For instance, she has dynamic positioning system on board which means we never drop an anchor. So it allows us to go into protected wild, um, marine wildlife areas, especially around coral reef areas, because we never drop an anchor. We protect the ocean floor. We don't damage the ocean floor. 
And with our dynamic positioning, the moment the captain puts the ship into the right position and gets our operational side of the ship in lead, not away from the windward side, and he just pushes the button, puts it on DPS, she won't move. And she can handle up to about 50 knot winds with about three meter swells and um, current pushing against her. And she'll work hard, but she'll hold to hold point. And because of that, with her dynamic positioning to get us into places that larger vessels just can't go to, that vessels that do not have dynamic positioning cannot go to, especially, like I said, ground marine protected areas and uh, marine parks. And so for our operation, it moves so much faster because the ship is not moving. It's always holding in lead where ships who are on anchor and when the winds and currents change direction, the ship will spin on an anchor. So many times that you have to stop the operation, the captain has to raise the anchor, reposition the ship, drop anchor again, and then you can resume operation. But with eclipse, that never happens. And so it allows more time and allows the expedition excursions to just flow naturally. Well, that's really good to know. And I think that'll be a, a, quite a big selling point because the fragility and the concern up in the Kimball at the moment, you know, with the, with the level of interest up there with cruise ships, it is an issue. Uh, so having something like this, uh, you know, having technology like this to operate, uh, you know, with minimal impact on the environment, I think will be a, a terrific thing. Um, tell us that the submersible you have can, can dive up to uh, 300 metres, I believe. It only operates in certain parts of the world. Will, will that include the Kimberley? Uh, unfortunately, no. And the reason why is the Kimberley has some of the most incredible tidal ranges. Every six hours, certain areas of the Kimberley will lose or gain anywhere from 8 to 16 meters of water. So that amount of current, that flowing, supersedes the submersible. Because you got to think of the submersible. It's not a submarine. It, it, it goes up and down with thrusters, and it's all battery-powered. So the thrusters can only handle up to 3 knots of current. So they're battery-operated thrusters to just allow her to maneuver in circles or just move slightly, you know, in different directions, but she's not meant to um, move in a single direction for a long duration. So she really just goes up and down to a specific dive site so that all the guests who are on board the ship and doing, multi, you know, as we're doing our, our dives, our 40-minute dive rotation, the guests all see the same thing because we're always trying to hold to the same dive site to give everyone that same experience. And unfortunately, because of the tidal exchanges in the Kimberley, uh, it's just the currents are just too fierce for the, for the submersible to operate safely. So in the Kimberley, she won't operate, but in the rest of Australia, around the Great Greater Reef or on the north end, definitely will be diving the submersible. Can, can you can you briefly just summarise for us how some of the other amenities you've got for your expeditions, like uh, you know your zodiacs, uh, the kayaks, the, the paddle boards? It's focusing on the Kimberley for a second. We won't. We will not be paddleboarding or kayaking, and the reason why is the crocodiles and the sea snakes. And knowing that a, a saltwater croc can um, can swim almost twenty knots 
you know, in a short burst, no kayak or paddleboard can help run a saltwater croc. So out of safety, in the Kimberley, we won't be paddling, but we will be zodiacing. Uh, and even though the max speed of a zodiac is around 20 knots, but we can outlast a saltwater croc on a zodiac. Um, but moving to, for instance, the Great Barrier Reef, let's say, or anywhere else in the world where safety um, to the paddler is a non-issue, um, how we minimize one is we have specific protocols distance from wildlife. So, for instance, if we're, let's say, in Antarctica, we, we see some floating ice and see a seal or a penguin on the ice. We have specific distances that we keep away from. Uh, if the whale or the seal or penguin chooses out of curiosity to swim towards the paddlers, then we have specific protocols that will allow the wildlife, if they're intrigued, if they're curious, and it doesn't present any harm to the paddler or the wildlife themselves. And we have specific protocols on how the kayak or paddleboarder or zodiac positions themselves. We never, we never box in the wildlife, for instance, between the shore and the paddler. So we're always on the inside of that wildlife, let's say, closer to the shore side. So the whale can always swim back out to the open water. But if the wildlife wants to have that engagement, then, you know, that engagement can organically unfold without disturbing. We never paddle towards wildlife. Like I said, we keep our distances, but it's a little bit different if the wildlife, as long as it doesn't present any risk to the paddler nor the wildlife themselves and have that kind of close encounter. I've forgotten about those crocs actually up there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When I found out how fast they swim, and I'm going, my zodiacs do 20 knots, and the crocs can do 20 knots. As long as we can outrun them, outlast them, we'll be okay. Absolutely. Jason Flesher, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you this morning on the Pod Well Travelled. Thank you for your time. So that's a very intimate look at uh, how those ships operate very interesting and of course the Kimberley you know is is kind of the hot version of the of Antarctica I suppose a wilderness area and certainly an area that's seeing a lot of lot of interest from global travelers and those huge tides that the Kimberley have it's a very mm. unusual environment of course up there very interesting you know as, as we've heard during the podcast here the multi-generational you know, aspect of this and it sort of strikes me that in some ways you know having you know a bunch of kids parents grandparents it, cruising is almost replacing the old camping holiday you know that you know but grandparents can play games with the kids and then they all go to dinner together and so on and so forth you know that it's a really nice way to spend family time without having to worry about logistics you know, once you're on yeah. board, you're on board. It's a, it's a really interesting dynamic on where people sit on that spectrum, I, I, I guess. It's a lot of people's worst nightmare in terms of a holiday experience, having, you know, up to 10,000 passengers and crew, which is what we're going to be seeing next year on 
something like the Icon of the Seas, but, you know, anywhere between six and, and 10,000 people on a ship with all ages, including kids, it, it, I can see why people would avoid it like the plague, but it, it's a very, very, very popular well, it is, mode but of, of no, travel. This, is, this comes back to the whole point we've been talking about, is being on the right ship, the right itinerary, you know, yeah. and in the right cabin is, is the crucial thing because... If that's a nightmare for you, I just took um, 30 plus audience members with me on the Viking trip that I mentioned from Norway to Faroes to the to Iceland. Mm. And a lot of those had never been on a cruise ship before. And without exception, they really enjoyed it and were genuinely surprised by their introduction to that level of cruising. So... So it's just finding the right ship and then the right itinerary that it's suits It's such you. an important, yep. valid point that you yes. make. I mean, if I can go by the, the moniker of, you know, no kids, no casinos, uh, and that just suits some people yep. absolutely yep. perfectly. Um, you know, terrific. <laughs> I, have, I, have been, I have dealt with an audience member who was on a cruise out of Hong Kong, talking about being on the wrong ship and the wrong itinerary because he managed to book himself on a seven-night cruise out of Hong Kong, but it was it was a casino cruise, so the ship drove out every night and then back into Hong Kong every day and put some more people on. They gambled all night and then he went back in every day, so he just went in and out of Hong Kong for seven days. I mean, it's an extreme example, but talk about being on the wrong ship and the wrong itinerary, so get good advice and uh, really think about it. And it's really worth looking at the... All those boring plans of the ship, trying to work mm. it out. Spend a bit of time looking at it and where you're going to be positioned on it and where everything is and how it's going to work for you. Try and try and visualise the ship as well. I always look for outdoor areas. You know, I just want to know how much outside areas because some ships just almost don't have any. You know, I mean, they might have the top deck, but there's not much around the sides or the front. And I really like to get outside and feel like I'm on a ship. You know, apart from. Yeah being on a cruise look i think the one thing that we haven't really talked about is price how that you know the price of cruise ships you know it varies doesn't it from the sort of cheapest chips um mediterranean family ships up to luxury expedition cruising so once again there's there's sort of something for everyone but generally i think you know cruising takes people to places they wouldn't get to in, in a very economical way and even now, I'm. I'm. Some of the prices that we see for cruise packages are just bizarre. You know, I mean, particularly those the long voyages, repositioning voyages, where they're coming from, say, the northern hemisphere to reposition for the southern hemisphere season. You can get twenty, thirty day voyages for yeah less than you could live at home. Michael, that was fantastic. Thanks for this deep dive dare Great i say chat. into yeah. uh, into cruising and uh in in all its aspects uh thanks for uh, lining up two great uh, guests on the show today as well and we'll have more cruising from michael ferranti uh, here on the pod well traveled thanks for joining us uh we'll have more travel guides and special episodes coming up so stay tuned stay subscribed and we'll be with you again